We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Today, my guest is Laura Bryden. Laura is a naturopathic doctor who lives in New Zealand and works in Sydney, Australia, and she is the author of the Period Repair Manual. She does a lot with women's health, has some really deep understanding of how to use nature to both understand and to heal a woman's menstrual cycle. I'm really excited to have her on the show. So Laura, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thanks so much, Michael. It's great to be here. Yeah, from the other side of the world and a, yeah. not, a, not just a different time zone, a different day. Yes, yeah. one day in the future. One day you're from the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm curious to know, let's begin here by uh, getting a little background on what took you down this path of working with women's health and in particular, helping women to change their menstrual cycle with natural methods. So I started out in general practice in a small town in Canada, treating everybody and everything that you know came to see me. And of course, I think it, it, like in many places in natural medicine, a lot of my patients were women and women that were you know n- really not getting the answers that they needed for their hormonal problems anywhere else. And so from my earliest days of practice, I was just on the ground working with them, seeing what how how powerful treatments such as diet change and herbal medicine could be for women's periods. And so that's where it all started for me. I know when I was first studying Chinese medicine, it was astounding to me, really fascinating, how much time my instructors took during the interview with talking with a woman about their period. It was just mind-blowing to me because, well, for one, being a man, but for two, not having a sense of just how, in some ways, the period is this, um, well, actually, I, I read your book, and you talk about it as being like a report card. Yeah, the monthly report card. The monthly report card. Yeah, talk to us more about that. As you say, it's an old idea. It's an idea that I think 
for a few decades our you know modern medicine has lost sight of but it's certainly practitioners you know from previous times knew about this um that it, that our period the menstrual cycle is an expression of general health in that when the digestion's working and blood sugar's working and mood and stress levels and thyroid and when everything else is ticking along properly then the menstrual cycle will come monthly and it won't be painful and it won't be too heavy and so it's it's just such a useful sign and I'll, I'll just say quickly it's, this is not just of course this is not just my idea it's you know doctors in the past used it and it's it, we're moving that way again the i just remember the name of the body it's a it's a gynecologist obstetrician um body in in the united states has just issued a report we'll put the link later for your listeners on, on the end of your podcast mm. saying that gynecologists should start to ask their young women patients to track their cycles and they call it the you know it's that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign is a is a sixth a fifth or a sixth vital sign as in it's something that is providing information about the body and that doctors should encourage women to track it for that reason and that just came out a few months ago and it was just pretty exciting that is really good news yeah yeah i, I know it's been it's been curious for me at times because of the questions that I ask due to my training, that sometimes I end up knowing more about a woman's period than she does. Of course. That's common. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, in the process, she learns a lot about it as well. It is such an important barometer of what else is going on. And so I'd like to get into how is it that hormonal birth control came to be known as the solution, and I'm using this in air quotes, fixed a woman's cycle. Because it doesn't seem to fix anything, but that's, that's the story that people get. How did we get here? It's a bizarre, yeah, convoluted. I, I think, you know, in terms of why, okay, well, let's just say first, in terms of why it's so pervasive now, why, why perhaps doctors and, you know, sort of doctors feel like that's just a good enough solution is because precisely because what we just said that, the, you know, the period is an expression of many complex factors in the body. So to really have a conversation about how to fix your period, one has to delve into everything about the woman's health. And I think perhaps that's something that a lot of doctors just don't have the capacity or, you know, the time to do. They don't think of it that way. So they, so in many ways, women's health has been put in the too hard basket and we just need an easy fix. It's like, you know, what's the one thing that can just mask all the symptoms and make it all go away? But of course, that's all that it's doing. It's, it's masking symptoms. The, the most important thing to understand, I think, for your listeners is that pill bleeds are not periods. They are, they're, the only similarity about them is that they're a bleed. And, you know, one is a is a, an, a, like the end of a you know, series of very important hormonal events that happens in a, happen in a woman's body. That's a real period. A pill blade is just a withdrawal from a dosing of synthetic steroid drug, which drugs which are not even identical to our own hormones, and it's just a withdrawal from the, that drug. And that, that doesn't have to happen monthly. It never had to happen monthly. You know, the pill bleed could be three times a year, and that would be just equally as valid. But in the early days of marketing the pill, they wanted to women to dose it monthly. I think just as a sales pitch, really, to sort of make them feel like it was, you know, st still somehow related to their natural cycle. 
Right. So let me make sure that I'm tracking this correctly. Yeah. Because some of our listeners out there might be going, what? You mean I could just take the pill endlessly and that would be the same as as having these monthly bleeds? Well, it would be no worse. You know, I think I obviously, as you know from reading my book, I feel that hormonal birth control and the pill, whether it's the pill or the implant or NuvaRing or any of the various way, methods that we take it, I feel that it's harmful for women's health and that it shuts down our own hormones. And so I wouldn't go so far as to say it's okay to just, you know, stay on the pill long term and that but in terms of whether it's important it's to have a bleed, a monthly bleed or not, it's not. So I think if women are taking hormonal birth control, if they've made that decision to shut down their own hormones and use these synthetic steroids instead, then they really can let go of the idea of a monthly bleed because it doesn't benefit them in any way. Right. It's more a psychological thing. Yes, exactly. Supposed to bleed once a month. Okay, bleeding, that's a period. But it's it's actually not. not. No. So I've read a little bit of your book, and it's. I'm going to put a plug in for your book here. It's my show. I get to do whatever I want. Um, Your book, The Period Repair Manual, is, first of all, it's easy to read. It's engaging. It's incredibly informative. And I think even for the layperson, they'll really come away with a deeper understanding of what is going on with the hormonal cycle and why it matters. And we'll have links to that on the show notes page. It, uh, if you, for listeners out there, if you have, yeah, I'm really getting on the soapbox here, aren't I? Mm-hmm. If, if you've got any interest in, in fixing your period and really getting, getting it under control. So, well, I don't know if mm-hmm. under control is the right word. Yeah. You um, caught yourself saying an interesting word there. I agree. Control is maybe not, but yes, yeah, it, it's not so much about control. It's about, it's about paying attention to what your body's doing and being able to track it and do something about it over the course of time. And working with your body. And working read, with read your body. Read the signs and give your body what it needs. Yeah. So beautifully written. For our listeners, could you give us a quick overview of what is happening with the hormones and the ovaries and just sort of introduction to uh, menstruation 101? Because yeah. I, my suspicion is that a lot of folks actually don't understand this. Okay, I just want to respond, respond to a couple of things you said. Well, one thing is just that, you know, how much you got out of it. And obviously, as a practitioner, you're helping women. And that's why you care about periods. And But it, it, I've had feedback from a lot of men, you know, practitioners and husbands and boyfriends and fathers of men who are very interested in this. So um, that's something I didn't expect when I was writing the book. And I've just been very happy about that. We care about the women we love. Of course. Yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of what period 101, let me keep it simple to start with. I think mm. what, what's what's been lost with you know with, with under the this kind of illusion that of a pill bleed and you know what, what what we haven't been thinking about and what I tried to draw attention to with my book is the importance of ovulation because that is how women make hormones. So men, as you know, as you, men make testosterone daily. Of course, there's a little diurnal cycle, you know, it's higher in the morning and there's, there's, there's kind of a different sort of cycling that men do. But women are on a monthly cycle. And we normally go through these phases where around the time of our period, we make almost no hormones. If you measure your hormones, they'll be really low at that time, both estrogen and progesterone, very low. And then moving as we move into the first part of the first half of our cycle before ovulation, 
a hormone called estradiol, that's our main estrogen, starts to go up. That says the eggs develop and get one, you know, get prepared to one of the eggs is going to ovulate, going to one of the ovaries is going to release an egg. That's a hormonal event. That estradiol is highly beneficial. I can't even say how beneficial it's, it's such an amazing hormone. It is important for mood, bones, libido, fitness, like muscle mass, insulin sensitivity, sleep. <laughs> Mm. You know, the, the flora, like the good bacteria living in the vaginal tract, all of these things depend on a, an exposure to estradiol, which is a beneficial hormone. And it's not, this is the thing I want to say, it's not the same molecule as something called ethanol estradiol that's in the pill. That is a different molecule. It has different effects on the body. It's not identical. And it doesn't have the same benefits. No. It has some of the same. There's a little bit of overlap, actually, between estradiol and ethanol estradiol, which will, which is very different than the other hormone, progesterone, and its analogs, which we'll talk about in a minute. There's a few, a bit of overlap, but it, in some cases, it has opposite effects. For example, estradiol is very beneficial for insulin sensitivity, and if you're perhaps your listeners are familiar with how important it is to have a proper insulin balance in the body, that's affected by estradiol. And ethanol estradiol in the pill has the opposite effect, which is one of the reasons that the pill or that hormonal birth control contributes to something called insulin resistance, which is also called prediabetes, which is you know a problem with blood sugar, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's the first half of our cycle, what's called the follicular phase, when we're getting ready to ovulate and we make all this lovely estradiol. And at times you can make too much estradiol, which is where, you know, then that's that's important to read those signs and know how to help your body perhaps remove or successfully detoxify or clear some of that estradiol. And, and what would some of those side effects be of too much estradiol? Well, so women, the women who are, it's it's rare. It's it's sometimes it's partly that they're making too much. It's usually more that they're not clearing estrogens properly, including their own estradiol and other estrogens that we're exposed to from the environment. And symptoms of that would be breast tenderness, mood irritability. Estrogen is quite stimulating, which is good. It's quite stimulating for mood. It can be, you know, um, can feel quite happy and, you know, a bit euphoric from estrogen, but too much can create irritability and headaches and breast tenderness. I guess that's another marker. And eventually, you know, a heavier than normal period can in part be from having been exposed to too much estrogen through the cycle. So those are things that I might look for. And so I'm thinking now as a Chinese medicine practitioner, putting yeah. maybe putting some things together. We're going to do this live on the show here. Yeah. <laughs> so this extra estrogen, estradiol, is it by any chance cleared through the liver? Of course. Yeah, the liver okay. No wonder we're so interested in the liver in Chinese medicine and its influence on a woman's cycle. So there's a formula called... Buplerum and peony. I'm trying to remember the um, to remember the Chinese name for it, which is, uh, you know, when I learned it, you know, it was typically given for PMS and, you know, hormonal that kind of irritability symptoms. Yeah. It helps to promote buplerum. Promotes that's the you know the genus name of it. It promotes. Uh, I've, I have a study actually where it actively promotes the, the detoxification of estrogen through the liver. That's one of the things it does. Yep, that's that's a common formula that pretty much any Chinese medicine practitioner we call it Sinisan. Uh, There's one of them called Sinisan, and one of its kissing cousins would be Shaoyao uh, uh, San. So yeah, that's the that's the name I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So that's, of course, so that's, that's working on that principle. And of course, yeah, in Chinese medicine, you would learn to read those signs, you know, the irritability, the breast tenderness, the kind of, you know, fullness, the stagnation, I guess. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, 
Okay, so that's the first part of the cycle. But I'll just say, you know, that makes it all, all that makes it kind of sound like estrogen is bad, but it's not. It's not, it, it just has to be at the right level. And I think, talk to any woman who's got too little estrogen or estrogen deficiency and, you know, <laughs> she's feeling quite the opposite in terms of depression, sleep, you know, um, sleep problems and dryness and vaginal dryness and symptoms like that. Well, you know, I think when it comes to practicing medicine, any medical practitioner should be required once a year to read Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> yes. Mama Bear, baby. Yeah. You know, Just because you right. don't want too much. You don't want too little. You want what's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'll just say in closing about that, you know, estrogen is my favorite hormone. You know, mm. I know it gets a lot of bad press, but it's it's a powerful, very interesting hormone. So, all right. So that's the first part of our cycle. And then we ovulate, mm-hmm. which is we release an egg, which is you know, could be to make a baby, but many times that's not what women want to be doing. So they, you know, will have had to have some method of barrier method or avoiding intercourse at that time or something, you know, to prevent making a baby. But then ovulation is not just to make a baby. The the, the other thing that what happens next is that after ovulation, it's only after ovulation, the ovaries make progesterone. And progesterone I said, you know, I said estrogen is my favorite hormone. Progesterone is many people's favorite hormone. It's it's a very luxurious, <laughs> wonderful hormone because we only have it for the last, you know, 12 or 14 days of our cycle. We only make it if we've managed to ovulate every cycle, which is not always that easy to do. It's very calming hormone. It's anti-inflammatory. It makes periods lighter. It, it counteracts. Many people talk about, I guess in my book, I talk about progesterone as the, I use the analogy of the yin to estrogen's yang. So progesterone is a very yin hormone, as in very, yeah, <laughs> calming, um, preventing cell division, that sort of thing. Do you, what's your response to that, Michael, and progesterone? Well, again, I'm, I'm sort of fresh off reading the book. Yeah. And... Uh, and so the, the the thing about that the second part of the cycle, not yeah. not just that the that's the only time the progesterone is is released, and that it's calming. The thing to me that's amazing is that follicle that releases the yeah. egg in yeah. like what the space of twenty four hours yep. becomes its own gland that secretes yep. progesterone and it grows to the size of four centimeters. Yep, in just a day. That's nuts. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I quote the scientist who worked on that. She said, there is nothing else, no other time in the body where something like that happens. Imagine the amount of vitality we need to do that. And then you understand why a period is a monthly report card, right? Yes. You can only do that if you're healthy. Yes. Yeah. Well, and if all that's being suppressed by synthetic hormones. Right. What a loss. Yes. That's what I think. Of a treasure. <laughs> that's what I think. Yeah. It's a loss. It's a Okay, I'm going to gently say a word <laughs> to your listeners. I hope it's okay. You can edit this out later if you want, but it's um to suppress ovulation is a type of castration of women's hormonal system. You know, you that is a strong word and 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 yes, it will stay in there. Okay. <laughs> you point out in your book that yes, it, it's also possible to have a pill that suppresses fertility on the man's side, but <laughs> it is the equivalent of castration. None of us would put up with it. No. 
No, not for an instant. Hang on a second. There's, there's another question that was on the tip of my tongue in this, and, and I want to get it back because it's really germane to this. Yes, very strong word here, castration. And very, I mean, what's going on here with these synthetic hormones is profound. Just to clarify that progesterone, with, the, with hormonal birth control, progesterone is gone. It's non-existent. Like, it n- is never made. And the progestins, the jospronone and the levonorgestrel and all these synthetic progestins or analogs of progesterone that they give have virtually none of the same benefits. They don't benefit. They're not calming. They're not cancer protective. They're not any of those things that progesterone is. And for example, I'll just give, there's a recent study out of UCLA that women who take hormonal birth control have different brain structures compared to women who have natural cycles. And they don't know the mechanism, but I suspect a big part of it is that women on hormonal birth control do not experience, do not have the estradiol and progesterone that the nervous system needs. Both of those hormones have very strong effects on the brain. Right. So their brain is actually different. Their brain is actually different. Their brain's different. And the other yeah. thing, and yes, this is the piece that came back from uh, yep. Holly's book, Sweetening the Pill. Yeah. She talks about how women on the pill often have a completely different sense of themselves. But they don't realize it at the time. In fact, they usually don't realize it until they've come off the pill and then come back to a sense of, oh, I remember this part of me. (laughs) It's not surprising, especially if someone has gone on the pill, which is, I feel very strongly against, I feel very sad about if you're 13 or 14 years old. And your brain is still forming, your libido is still forming. You know, you don't even know really who you are at that age. And so then at 14, if you take the pill at 14, you become yeah, a different, yeah, different brain structure. As I said, the pill changes brain structure. You, you know, you different emotions, different, potentially different mood. One one thing that I see in my practice quite a lot, which makes me very sad, is I'll, you know, taking the history of someone, I'll see, okay, went on the pill at 14, then by 15 on an antidepressant because uh-huh. presumably because you're a teenager and you know whatever just was are depressed but it rarely has the question been could one thing have led to the other and yet we know and there's shockingly very little research about this but there's a little bit of research starting to happen that those synthetic progestins especially i think it's the progestin component are linked with depression and anxiety we're seeing a little bit of it in the research and certainly you see it clinically you ask anyone who works with women you know, practitioner. And that is a very real effect, mm-hmm. the mood, depression effect. Yeah. Speaking of young women, 13, yes. 14, 15, uh, they've been prescribed the pill for numerous reasons, sometimes just because, well, you're female, you should be on the pill. They're, you know, And sometimes because they are having trouble with their periods. Yes. Now, yes. they're just beginning to have periods and they're, they're still growing into themselves. Yep. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about a young woman who's just beginning to menstruate, those first few years, perhaps. What's going on there? How is she growing into herself? And how is that different than someone who might be in their, say, yeah. early or mid-20s? Great question. Okay, well, one thing, the thing that comes to mind, first of all, is the heavier periods. 
So estrogen is very powerful hormone. You just said you when children don't they have some of it, but they don't have a lot. So obviously, when a girl starts menstruating and moving towards menstruating, that's the first. That's a large amount of estrogen that she needs to calibrate to, if you will. Like her body's just getting used to this. Like it, by calibrate, I mean how the hormone receptors they're called. You know, the in all the cells in the tissue and the uterine lining, they're they're just kind of getting used to what it's like to have this much estrogen floating around in the bloodstream. So they're kind of getting woken up. Yeah, they're getting woken up. Very common, very common situation is in those early first couple of years of periods for periods to be not regular. That's normal. Um, But also very common for periods to be quite heavy at that time. And by heavy, I mean, very heavy. Like, you know, I think, um, you know, you know, 14 year old girls, you know, needing to wake up in the middle of the night to change their pad. And, you know, that, that's kind of distressing. Of course, that is distressing. And I think in my book, I offer some solutions for that. You know, so I think that's something we can help girls with. We don't have to just let them suffer with that. But also, I think it's important to know that it won't be like that forever. That's not like, that's not how their periods are always going to be now. That That's the early, periods are often heavier to start with. That's been my experience with teenagers. And there's reasons for that. It's because of that early exposure, that first frontline exposure to estrogen. Mm-hmm. Body hasn't adapted and calibrated itself yet. Yeah. And also girls at that age probably aren't making a lot of progesterone yet. They're not maybe necessarily ovulating every cycle. So, and remember ovulation is how we make progesterone and it's, and progesterone is one of its effect is to lighten periods. So as they get more developed and they start to ovulate more regularly, that's, and I see it, I see it all the time with my patients and with, you know, it's, that's, yeah, as they grow into their periods, they will become lighter. They will become more regular. So would it be fair to say that these younger women are suffering from an estrogen excess? Of a sort. You know, it, yes. Yeah, I guess if you measured it on blood test, it might not be excess. It might kind of be in the normal range. But they're, from their body's perspective, a lot of it is to do with this, what we call receptor status or the hormone receptors. How is that? How is their body reading that amount of estrogen? And to them, it's, those are estrogen excess symptoms. That's, you know, they're showing signs of strong stimulation by estrogen. Mm-hmm. But we can help them with that. Like, I, uh, just very simply, like just for your listeners, just very simply, um, the herbal medicine turmeric, which I use a lot because it's so safe and gentle and so wonderful and, you know, it lightens periods and it's that's something really, teenage girls respond really well to that, for example. This episode is supported by our friends over at Golden Needle Acupuncture, Herbal, and Medical Supply. Golden Needle carries a wide range of Chinese medicine supplies and natural healthcare products for the modern acupuncture clinic. Golden Needle offers listeners of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast free ground shipping on all orders of $99 and above until May the 10th. You can contact them at www goldenneedleonline.com and be sure to tell them that Michael sent you. You can also find a direct link to them over on the show notes page. Also, if you want to directly support the show yourself and help to keep some leaves in the teacup, you can do so by leaving a donation over on the website at everydayacupuncturepodcast.com. Thanks again for listening and now on to the second half of the show. by itself or do you use it with something else i've heard a lot of talk recently that for turmeric to really bring out all its beneficial goodness you need to add a little bit of pepper to it 
Yeah, well, I use um, something what they're called liposomal formulas. So they're they're tablets that have been have kind of a fatty component, like in the processing of. So they're a they're an extract of turmeric that's been made to be more available and more absorbable. That's I, I find that's necessary. I think I don't think it's enough usually just to have turmeric as a spice, although you know as a loose loose herb. Although that might do something, but. Unless yeah. you're eating it in a curry where there's plenty of coconut oil and yeah. uh, and pepper, yeah. in which case it's yeah. totally bioavailable. Yes, so that, I mean cur- yes, exactly. You would be getting some of that. Yeah. But let me just say about teenagers. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it's always that simple. Of course, I know. I know from my own work, my own clinic work, and I'm sure you see it too. There are girls that are that. That's not. It's not just that. It's not just that their periods are a bit heavy or irregular to start with. That they they've potentially got other problems happening and. A common one is something called polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they're perhaps even at a young age already showing signs of excess androgens or testosterone and not ovulating regularly. And if there's, if it can be, you know, if, if they are in a state of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, then it's possible they are not going to just grow into a regular ovulation without some help. So, Yes, I mean they're having real, they're having problems. But even then, especially even not even even especially for PCOS, hormonal birth control or the pill is not the answer because, cruelly, hormonal birth control essentially worsens the condition because it worsens insulin sensitivity. It worsens the kind of hormonal imbalance that underlies most PCOS. It worsens the condition. And this is not just me saying this. This is not just a naturopathic idea. This is in the literature now that the real questions from endocrinologists and researchers is like, why are we, what are we doing here? Because, you know, we're masking the symptoms by just dictating a withdrawal bleed, I guess, and shutting down hormones. But we're not, in the meantime, when that woman eventually comes off the pill, she's going to be in a worse state with regard to her PCOS than before she took it. Right, because it's not a treatment. It's been masking symptoms. Yeah, masking and sorry, doing it for worse. tens yeah. of years, maybe. Yeah. This brings me to a, an, another question. This is something that I see here. I live in the Midwest of the United States these days. And I, I used to live on the West Coast. And so I'd never really heard about oblation surgeries on the West Coast. Uh, when I got here to the Midwest... I ran into lots of of women, uh, patients primarily who who'd had these ablation surgeries or who were considering them. This is and for our listeners that don't know what this is, it's for women with extremely heavy periods and often they go on and on and on and so the thing they do is they basically burn out the lining of the uterus so a woman doesn't bleed. Yeah. And I have opinions about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm curious to and and I was shocked to hear about it too because I hadn't heard about it so much on the West Coast. So, uh, for our listeners who might be suffering from this or know someone who's suffering from this, how do the methods that you work with help women with these kinds of issues? And again, I, and, and before you answer, I just want to mention we're not here to give medical advice, right? No. These are things to take under consideration, and ideally, go talk to your practitioner about. Um, this is for information, right? If you if you really need to see a, a doctor, by all means, go see a doctor. Um, that being said, what can women think about in terms of helping this condition? Okay. 
Right. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, in fact, I, I mentioned, I talk about ablation in my book and I, because in my book, I also lay out the conventional treatment options as well. And then the natural treatment options so that women can see, hopefully, you know, for any given condition, all of their options. So it's, it's prescribed for heavy bleeding in the perimenopausal, like, like obviously it would, it would never, it's never prescribed for a young woman because it destroys for permanently destroys fertility. So that's just to clarify for your listeners that it's it's really only an option for someone in their 40s, I guess, who from the doctors, from the conventional perspective is they don't, you know, they don't really see that the, that the flooding periods, the heavy periods are going to end anytime soon. Like, you know, a, a typical pattern without any treatment or help is that you might just, if you start to get these very heavy periods, um, that might just ramp up and worsen until, you know, up until menopause. So I know it's a real, and I'm sure you've seen that with your patients. Certainly I have seen p- people that have, women that have been bleeding very heavily and I can understand. Right. I mean, to the point why of anemia. This, oh, like to, you know, losing. So I give the example. So a normal amount of blood loss in a period throughout all the days of the period is between, I'm going to speak in milliliters, which I'm not, you know, how that, in terms of, and I, I say how to measure that with tampons and menstrual cups and things. So up until, so the a normal would be, say, between sort of 15 milliliters and 80 milliliters through all the days of the period, 80 milliliters. But it's not unusual with flooding heavy periods to lose perhaps 500 milliliters. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it's a, it can be quite scary. So I... I I um I'm curious to know what you know what from your Chinese medicine perspective what you think that might mean for the body. I, I ablation is not my first choice, of course, and I find that usually with some of the treatment protocols, the turmeric and I, I recommend sometimes a dairy-free diet and you know keeping iron levels good and potentially using some natural progesterone and putting these in place for women in their 40s to lighten periods as much as possible, but depending on how well they're responding, I might sometimes say ablation is an option. It, in my view, it's preferable to hysterectomy, which is what they were doing, because I've been doing this a long time. So 20 years ago, ablation wasn't an option. Hysterectomy, like removal of the uterus was routine. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and often done after the first one or two episodes of heavy bleeding. It's like, oh, that's right, you know, take it out. So I'm, in some ways, I'm glad, I'm pleased that we have women have more options. They don't just have to lose their uterus right away. There's there's other options. There's ablation, and the other option is um, the hormonal IUD called Marina, which is quite different than other methods of hormonal birth control. I'll just speak about Marina. It it releases um, a synthetic progestin, not progesterone, but a synthetic analog called levingestrol. It releases it locally in the uterus and prevents, it's kind of like a chemical ablation, if you will. Like it prevents the the buildup of the uterine lining. And a relatively small amount of that progestin enters the bloodstream, although some of it does. So it's, um, you know, those are the sort of the two options that, yeah. I, I, what mm-hmm. do you think? What, what's your reason? What's your concern about ablation? What's What is your feeling about what that might do again there there are situations where it's probably a good idea yeah i just think it's well and this is just my bias yeah any sort of invasive surgery why not try some simple things first let's see if the body's up to taking care of it on its own yeah and and so that that's my particular perspective people who share that perspective are the people who come to see me People who yeah. don't share that perspective, of course, they just, you know, they never walk in my door. 
using the Chinese medicine point of view, there's a number of different ways of looking at it, usually through the lenses of excess and deficiency. There might mm-hmm. be some organs that, that are weak and they need to be strengthened, and that will take care of the bleeding. There's other places where maybe it's due to stagnation, and you get rid of the stagnation, and then the bleeding stops. But it's always a situation of looking at that individual person, their unique uh, body type, constitutional type, and a unique set of symptomology. Yeah. And only then am I able to begin to chart a course with yeah. how to help them. There's never such thing as one size fits all. Yeah. One of the one of the things one of the in that section in my book on the heavy periods, one of the thing, one of the things I say, and that I, I just try to communicate with my own patients and my readers is. I'm trying to guide, you know, put everything on the table, try to guide people. When it comes to the time where there's a tough decision to be made, you know, um, I, I don't want women to feel that they, it's an all or nothing, that they have to either go natural treatment or just go all the way and have a hysterectomy. I just, I sort of, because um, sometimes, and I don't want them to feel like they've failed either if, if natural treatment hasn't worked for them for heavy periods, because I know that I know that, periods, I know that sometimes heavy, heavy periods in, in our 40s can be, tricky to manage even with the even when they're being perfect with their diet and everything else and you know there's th- that's a situation where there can be kind of a st- strategic decisions made around which medical intervention might be the best and there, of course the reason i prefer ablation and even marina to hysterectomy is because hysterectomy is more of a major surgery i mean they actually have to cut into the abdomen you lose structurally you use, lose the uterus that all the pelvic organs need and potentially sometimes when they're in there, they take the ovaries as well, which is, you know, at least at least after ablation and marina, the woman is still ovulating. So she's still potentially making the estradiol and progesterone that... Right. She's getting that need. nice monthly yep. hormonal bath yeah, of, for, the, of these really essential yeah, hormones. Yeah. For brain and bones and everything else, you know, the other benefits from yeah. those hormones. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the word failed here. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there's such a funny... There's a phrase, I don't know if they use it over there, but they use it here, that if if you try a treatment and it doesn't work for someone, in the conventional way of thinking, they say, oh, the patient failed the treatment, <laughs> which to yeah. me is ludicrous. Yeah, It's not that patients fail the treatment. No. Treatments fail the patient. Yeah. Not everything works for everybody. Yeah. You know, our job as practitioners is to help people get what they need at yeah. the time that they need it in the appropriate way. And sometimes that's a simple change of diet. Sometimes that is a surgery. Yep. Um, the trick is to really be able to hone in on what is it that they actually need and, and what is it that they want? What do they want for themselves? And to balance mm-hmm. all of that together. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's a, yep. interesting. Good question about ablation. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's jump into fertility for a moment. So a lot of women come off the pill and expect they're going to get pregnant right away. And, and some do. And some do, right? Yep. You know, off, often the friends of the women who, you know, who aren't getting <laughs> yeah. pregnant right away. But all my friends are pregnant. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and of course, that can be very, very, very frustrating. What's going on here? Why is it that some women get pregnant right away after coming off birth control and others? Uh, it, okay. it could take much longer. There's so, well, I'm sure you know, so many things going on with fertility. And I don't. I, my book doesn't speak to fertility directly very much. Of course, I'm. my book is all about how to ovulate regularly, 
you know, how to have easy periods. And, and often that will, that will move someone towards better fertility if the problem has been lack of ovulation or, you know, maybe perhaps problems with the uterine lining and hormones. And, but fertility isn't always a women's hormone problem. This is something I want to just say. I know you know this, but it might be a problem with ovulation. It might be a problem with progesterone, but it might be a male problem. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times I've seen women desperately trying anything for fertility. And it's like, can I please see the semen analysis? Because there's a problem with sperm out there. And at least in Australia, and I don't know what it's like in, in your country, but you know that it's often overlooked. The, doc- the doctors say, oh, it's good enough. You know, yeah, the morphology or the shit, it doesn't look that great, but it should be good enough because there's millions of them or something. It's like, well, no, that's not good enough. You know, you need morphology refers to the the shape, like the healthy shape and quality of the sperm. That's a direct reflection of genetic quality of the sperm. And that is very much affected by a man's diet, by his supplements, by whether he smokes, by you know, all sorts of things. So I feel, you know, the odd, the, the, the you know, the, I think it's about 50 50 in terms of unexplained, in terms of fertility. Well, both, both generally in terms of fertility. And then when you look, even at look at unexplained infertility, I think it's about 50 50 male, female. So that's one of my things. But in closing, I'll just, and one other thing I'll say is that the other thing that has a huge impact on fertility in, um, from the women's side is immune function and inflammation and immune regulation. And that's, I don't relate that directly. I don't speak about that in, in terms of, period things as much mm-hmm. but I'm, sh- I'm sure that that integrates with chinese medicine as well yeah it does and 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 i'm with you on the male factor yeah. it is it is often overlooked yeah and any chance i get to say hey guys yeah <laughs> do something to help here yeah um Often the sperm come, like you said, it will come back from, you know, being looked at under a microscope and go, oh, yeah, it should be good enough. Yeah. But, you know, we're not looking for good enough. We're looking for great. And, and the wonderful thing about men and their sperm is we make cabillions of these little guys. We do it frequent. You know, we do it all the time. A change in lifestyle and diet, maybe some supplements if we need them, in just a few months – can make a huge difference. And this is not just in terms of fertility, but if you've got better sperm, you're going to have a healthier child. Exactly. I think it's really important. Yeah, lower chance, better chance of healthy pregnancy, less lesser chance of miscarriage. You know, sperm sperm health is involved in all of those things. Right. And I couldn't agree more about the vi- the resilience of sperm. So sometimes I'll say you know, they're sensitive, like sperm are very sensitive to environmental toxins, for example, to inflammation in the body, to nutrient deficiency. But then on the flip side, when you kind of give them what they need and improve the environment of the body while the sperm is being made, yeah, they can, it can just be dramatic change. Yes. In a hundred days, it takes three months. That's it right. It takes three months to make new sperm. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. So listen up to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned uh, easy periods. Yep. How can a woman help to, what kind of things can a woman do to help promote having an easy period? I'm trying to raise the bar of, yeah, what, a, what a women can expect. I think, and again, this is not, this is, you know, not being judgmental of women. It's like sometimes, yes, that's, it's not quite where they're at, but they, with the right changes, they should be able to expect that they can have a period that arrives in a, you know, 21 to 35 day cycle, that's considered normal, that has 
very little or no PMS, no breast tenderness, no irritability, no food cravings before. And then just no spotting, just starts, flows for, you know, two to five days, not too heavy, and then finishes and not painful. That's what a period can be like and I think is possible for most women. Yeah. I I remember one of my teachers uh, back when I was in Chinese medicine school who used to say that just because uncomfortable periods are common, it doesn't mean they're normal. That's, I agree. Yeah, PMS is common, it's not normal. It's not Period normal. pain is common, it's not normal. Yeah. Yeah. So what can women do to, <laughs> well, to, get to, to get to this promised land of the easy period? Well, I talk about, in my book, I talk a bit about detective work. So, of course, we said that our period is a monthly report card. So if there's pain, you know, what... What could be the underlying reason? What's generating the inflammation, you know, the underlying sort of, I talk about inflammation a lot in my book, the inflammation that's contributing to a painful period. And it could be something inflammatory in the diet, like dairy. I actually find dairy is a common big cause of period pain. Um, It could be a magnesium deficiency. It could be a zinc deficiency. It's just some simple things, you know, um, could be taking something in a few months on like an anti-inflammatory herb like turmeric. Those are some examples of treatments that I recommend for period pain. Right. So, and, and you've got that more detailed in the book as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Another plug for the book, folks. <laughs> <laughs> what about, I, and I don't know if you get into this in the book. I suspect you do. I only got through part of it. Yeah. Uh, endometriosis. Yes. Oh, it's funny timing. Because, you know, today, Mike, I'm just about to release a blog post, a new blog post about endometriosis. I have written about it before. The first sentence of my blog post is, (laughs) endometriosis is not like other period problems. And I I explain why. It's, it's a bigger, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a condition. You know, it's, it's not just a hormonal imbalance. No, it's best defined probably as an inflammatory disease that there's growing evidence might even be able to be classified as an autoimmune disease. It's a condition. I mean, of course, some women, so endometriosis is a condition of pain, essentially pelvic inflammation, the spreading of, you know, the bits of uterine lining to different parts within the pelvis. And it can cause very, very severe pain. It can also be quite mild for women too. So that's good if, you know, it hasn't hit them that hard. But I take a I treat it as if it's essentially an autoimmune disease. I take more of an anti-inflammatory, kind of similar to how I might treat arthritis or something like that. That's mm-hmm. the way I, I approach it. And I don't know how, yeah, I'm curious to see, you know, from a TCM perspective, if that's, you know, is it about stagnation, I guess? And It's very much about stagnation. I'm, I'm just chewing here on your idea of it as an inflammatory disease. You know, I hear you say it and I go, that, sound, that sounds right. I, I don't know the details of why that sounds right, but it just intuitively kind of lands as, hmm, that's something to look into and, and consider more because it it just it just kind of fits. For example, sorry to interrupt, but like it's possible. I talk about all these things in the book, how it's important to have regular ovulation and making progesterone and helping to clear estrogen. And 
a woman can do all of those things and be ovulating regularly and having everything about her menstrual period, you know, cycle that looks pretty normal and still be suffering endometriosis. This is what I mean by it's a little bit different. You know, it's, it's a active kind of separate process that's going on. It's influenced by estrogen, estrogen, of course, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a condition that needs to be treated. And there's growing evidence actually that it's, and I talk, I'll talk about this in my blog post, that it's linked to problems with what we call the microbiome or, you know, bacteria in the body, intestinal bacteria, and even bacteria within the uterus and within the, you know, peritoneum. Not that it's an infection, but that it's being, you know, affected by that crosstalk that happens between our resident bacteria and our immune system. Can you go into that one just a little bit more? Yeah. Okay. That is really interesting. Yeah. Yes. So this is a much broader topic. So there's lots of talk about what's called the microbiome, which are our commensal or our good resident bacteria. Hey, there's more of them than us. Yeah. Yeah. And there's um, lots, lots of things in there that we don't even like there's viruses and, you know, and there's no one kind of normal set of bacteria. We've got hundreds of species and what seems to be important actually is kind of the biodiversity of those species and Mm -hmm. the ecosystem they set up in our gut. And we know now from the research that that's highly influential on our immune function. And what I say to my patients is essentially, you can think of it this way, and I talk about this in the book, my book, um, the bacteria direct the immune system. They're in some ways, they're kind of in charge, you know, they're, they're conducting the immune system. So anytime, and so that's true for allergies and autoimmune diseases. And there's lots of thousands of research papers coming out every month about, you know, how our, the microbiome affects those immune conditions. So uh, it it's no surprise to me that endometriosis fits within that, that it's being, in, because it's an inflammatory condition, it's being affected by bacteria. You know, the, good, the lack of good bacteria or, you know, perhaps having, you know, not quite, quite the right balance of bacteria. And again, that's different. It's not saying it's an infection. That's, you know, infection is a different thing. But it's a, what they call a dysbiosis or an imbalance of the bacteria. This to me is so fascinating because there's this idea in Chinese medicine that, and this is a code word, when we say spleen, yes. we mean the digestive system. And, and, and increasingly, as I've learned more about the human microbiome myself, yeah. I think when they're talking spleen, they're also talking microbiome. And there are so many conditions in women's health with Chinese medicine where we're treating the spleen, we're treating the digestion. That that link has been seen in Chinese medicine for a long, long time. And one of the beauties of all the research coming out now from the Western point of view is we're, we're beginning to, from the viewpoint of microbiology, yeah. Really see how all this stuff hangs together. Yeah. And and for so long we've been afraid of bacteria. Oh my goodness, those bacteria are going to kill us. And now we're realizing that actually it's the bacteria, I mean, like you were saying, they orchestrate our immune system. Yeah. They're an organ. They're an organ. They're in a they're an organ. They're a symbiotic organ. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, what you say about connecting that to the spleen. I think I kind of knew that at some level. I knew the spleen meant digestion, but I hadn't you know, made that direct connection with microbiome. That makes sense. Yeah, it's great. 
It's geez, we've been at this for a little while here. Yeah. It's, <laughs> we'll have to do a part two at some point. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> uh, any other tips or advice or comments that you'd like to leave our listeners with here? I just want to say, I just want to share with your listeners that, you know, the, it's less complicated than they think. I know if, if someone's been dealing with what have felt like very mysterious period symptoms, and as I said, it's kind of all been put in the all too hard basket and women can have quite a, it can be quite scary to come off the pill and try to do this another way. And yet my overwhelming experience with patients and now readers of my book is that they can do this. You know, you, you, you can just, it's, it's not that complicated to understand. And if you want to get a few basic principles and build your confidence, it's possible. And the thing is, just, just to, in, in closing, you know, women can come off the pill. They can always go back on if they really need to. But, you know, it, it, um, it, it's important to allow at least, I think, six months to kind of work with it and see what's happening. And I'll just, I'll say one final thing, actually. If one problem of coming off the pill is, what's something that I call post-pill acne or post-pill breakouts. That's something often drives women back onto the pill. It, it peaks about three or four months off the pill. So that's why I think it's important to give it more than three or four months because that's not even enough time to get through that, you know, that symptom. Mm-hmm. Is the post-pill acne peaking for maybe the same reasons that women, young women have heavy periods in that their body has not been used to the particular hormonal flux that it's now going through and it's, and it's readjusting. It's, I think it's kind of the opposite in a way it's withdrawal from ethanol estradiol from the synthetic estrogen Uh that is suppresses skin oils so strongly that, you know, after years of being on that, the, the, kind of to keep, you know, to compensate for that, the skin oil production kind of goes up, you know, underneath it goes up and up. So then when you pull away, you take away the synthetic estrogen, there's this overproduction of sebum and oils. And just with the nature of skin, that's going to have kind of a three month time frame before it really manifests itself. So that's, I think that's, it's a withdrawal from that. I see. That's good to know. All right. Laura, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, again, I want to remind everybody, go look at the show notes page uh, or just pop over to Amazon and get uh, the period repair manual. It's uh, If you're a woman, I think you'll find it really helpful. And if you're a guy and you gift it to someone that you love, a woman that you love, um, she'll know you really care about her. Yeah. And read it yourself if you're a guy, because lots of men have. And yeah, You know, that, that's the other thing. And, and I mean, as a practitioner, I'm sometimes embarrassed at, at how much I just don't know especially when I read something like your book and I learn a whole lot. <laughs> so yeah, this would be, you know, if you're a guy and you want to understand what a woman is, what's happening in her body, this is a great thing. And, you know, it might even be a nice thing to gift a, a young woman who's just beginning her menstruation process. Yeah. yeah. It was such a nice conversation with you today. So thank you for having me. hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. 
Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time. 